In 2009, Michael Ware was just starting a new job as one of the youngest White House staffers in the Obama administration. Still in his early 20s, he'd recently graduated with degrees in political science and government from George Washington University, as he writes about in his first book, Reclaiming Hope, serving in public life as deputy director of the White House faith-based office was a magnificent experience. Filled with promise, or as the saying went then, hope and change. But, as most anyone who sticks around in Washington discovers, there was eventually also disappointment and the learned reality of political limits, even despite 15-hour days. As the president's first term wound down, in 2012, Michael pivoted to the Obama campaign's get-out-the-vote effort and later consulted with nationwide faith-based organizations and became chief strategist at the AND campaign. When you're brand new to something, professionally, assuming you're a person of substance, you take stock of the thing, your own experience certainly, but also the institution. Michael is incredibly insightful, and in a sense, he's been pondering the condition of American politics for now more than 15 years. Another deep soul Michael admires and writes about in his brand new book, The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation and the Renovation of Public Life, is the late Dallas Willard, who died the same year that President Obama's second term began. Born in 1935, Willard grew up in poverty on a farm in Missouri. He lost his mother as a toddler. He knew estrangement and isolation, particularly in his early life. But a bit like Michael Ware, Willard took his studies seriously. In time, he became a Christian, studying philosophy at Tennessee Temple, Baylor, and the University of Wisconsin before teaching philosophy for over five decades in a prolific career at the University of Southern California. He spoke and wrote to not just future philosophy professors, but quite powerfully to the American church. In some sense, like Michael in Washington, Dallas took stock inside the academy of not only people and ideas, but institutions elite universities, the evangelical church, and to a lesser extent, the church's engagement in public culture. As a White House staffer, Michael didn't have time to read Willard's marvelous book, The Divine Conspiracy, until after he left. But it sounds like Michael hasn't quit wrestling with that book or Dallas Willard ever since. Joining Michael to discuss his new book is The Atlantic's Tim Alberta, who, as listeners to this podcast know, has also been working incredibly prolifically in recent years to comprehend how American Christians are engaging this political moment, both at the surface level, but also at the subterranean level, today and for the last few generations. Against that backdrop, Michael argues that our politics today will only get better if we get better. It isn't the president we elect. It isn't even smarter public policy. The only way to transcend the current polarized morass we're in is to deepen and revitalize our spiritual formation. Our politics is downstream of the kind of people we are, he argues. Our political leaders are more inclined to be unintegrated in their practices because the would-be faithful are also disjointed and unintegrated in our lives. So with these very themes in mind, in 2022, Michael launched the Center for Christianity and Public Life, where he today serves as CEO and helps support a small cohort of 14 mid-career fellows who spend a year focusing on formation over policy prescriptions, even if both have their place. The soul of our politics asks readers to consider that the way forward is to better align our political and civic engagement with our religious commitments. And while the democratic answer for believers is never theonomy or Christian nationalism or privileging a majority identity, Michael and Tim each have sketched the contours of what faithful integrated living might produce. It's love of neighbor. It's, as he says, the squeegee boys. It's the common good. It's what Willard calls gentleness. It's also the opposite of anxiety or instrumentalized religion or fear or anger. In some ways, considering the call Michael is extending here feels impossible, especially in the context of the 2024 election landscape. But at other times, it seems like the only path forward that could redirect us toward renewal. Enjoy the conversation. Michael Ware, it is good to see you again. Josh, good. Good to see you again. And to reprise our conversation and take it in some new directions, but I think also uh, continue the conversation we were having to some degree when we last got together. Michael, set the table for us first. I found myself 
compelled to write my book because of a very specific set of circumstances. And it wasn't something that necessarily, it wasn't a long percolating thing. When I read your book, specifically when I read the early portions of your book, I find myself wondering about a specific genesis point. It also strikes me that this is something that was percolating for a longer period of time for you. So I'm wondering if you can give us some of the backstory, not only when this project actually started to take shape in your brain, but maybe when some of the very earliest seeds were planted and talk to us a little bit about the process, because I think that's always interesting to hear from an author about the process from kind of the seeds being planted all the way to present day with the harvesting of them in the book that you are now getting ready to roll out to the world. Well, thank you so much. And Tim, it's just been what a joy to see the reception your book has received and the good work you've been doing. And so grateful for that and grateful for, yeah, the opening question, the opportunity to talk about Talk about this. I mean, you're right. This is a book that has been sort of forming in my mind and in my heart for a long time. There's one way to tell the story in which it begun. I was a young White House staffer. I was sent a copy of Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy, and it sat on my bookshelf in my office for six months. I had never heard of Willard before. I didn't think I had time to read a book that was as dense, especially for a, a trade book, a book meant for a general audience, you know, 300 pages. I'm like, I'm working 16 hour days. I don't have sort of time for this. And I ended up picking it up because my pastor back home in Buffalo recommended it. And he rarely wrote blogs or did anything, but he happened to write a blog recommending this book. And so I picked it up and it was, Tim, it was like a second spiritual awakening in my life. I had given my life to Christ when I was 15 after reading Romans. So I had been a Christian for some time, but for some reason, and I have some speculation, the way Willard approached the scriptures, approached life with Jesus resonated with me. I've been drinking from Willard's well for now well over a, a decade. So that's one way to tell the story. So this book is an application of Willard's ideas to public life and politics. Another way to tell the story is that this is a book that sort of I wanted to write after I finished my first book. My first book was a really like a story of personal experience and history looking at the Obama years. I end that book with a chapter sort of looking ahead, but in many ways, it's a book of assessment of trying to wrestle with what has been. This book is a much more idea-driven book and is much more an attempt at a constructive vision for what could be. So there was a natural flow there. And then obviously, I, I just say, Tim, I think this book is in part like yours, both a personal and social and political response to what we've seen unfold over really, I think, this century, but especially the last decade in American politics and the way that politics is shaping and affecting the life of the church. This book is sort of my best effort at responding to the moment, not in a reactive way, but in a way that tries to lift up Christian resources that are inherent in the faith and what they have to offer in this moment to the church and to our public life. I have to say, I have a multitude of takeaways, but the one that is just, I guess, looming largest in my mind, even now hearing you speak, is the very cerebral and sober tone that you take throughout the book. I mean, even in some portions where you name names and I started, you know, we're political junkies, right? And I started licking my chops a little bit like, okay, well, he's about to tee off, but you don't tee off. You show not only, I mean, to say that you show restraint would be misstating it. You show grace and you show humanity and civility when engaging with subjects that, you know, I think you can make clear your disagreements and you can refute certain points that are made, point the reader in a better direction, all of that, but done in a very civil and respectful way. I'm wondering if that was the byproduct 
of this sort of long process that you were describing. In other words, it comes across as your voice in the book, but I'm wondering if that voice is in some way the result of that long percolating process that you were just describing a minute ago, where the things you'd seen and observed and witnessed that you felt compelled to write about helped to not only kind of formulate your thoughts on this, but also help to refine the way in which you had to approach the subject matter. Yes, I think so. There is another book that's necessary, another approach that is a focus on everything that's wrong with our politics, what our political actors are doing. And I touch on a bit of that, but the core of the book, the heart of the book, is this idea that the kind of people we are has much to do with the kind of politics and public life we have. So yes, politicians, those in elected office, they have a particular kind of responsibility and need to be held accountable. What what I've found is it's too easy for Christians and really for the American public to stop the conversation there. When what I saw in my time in politics, what I see in my work in political life today is not this top-down only sort of relationship between uh, politicians, self-interest, impacting the public in negative ways. I also see our public life and politicians responding to the incentives that the American public present to them that the state of our politics is at the end a reflection in some way, in a significant way, we can't avoid the state of our politics is a reflection of the state of our souls, that there's an extent to which we are on the hook. We need to take responsibility for the part for which we are responsible, that we can't sort of cast all the blame on political actors. And so that's important to me. I think it's very necessary for there to be self-critique, it's very necessary to look at what I would take to be negative contributions from Christians into our politics. We need to look that in the face. That isn't something we should downplay or ignore. I also think that if the negative contributions of Christians are not in contrast to the ideal, are not in contrast to what's possible, then what are we even critiquing? What are we even doing here? One of my hopes for this book is that this will empower Christians will empower pastors to actually begin engaging in politics again, uh, not on the terms our politics provides, but actually having some confidence in the resources they have as Christians and how that can be brought. I write in the book, it's dangerous for Christians to engage in politics with their feet planted in politics. But when Christians can engage in politics with their feet planted in the gospel, then that's when we could actually offer something that's worthwhile and lasting and distinctive. And that's what I try to give vision for in the book in a context in which I just think our politics is suffocating and perhaps even especially Christian's moral imagination for what's possible in our public life. I, of course, Michael, looked through the end notes a little bit in preparation for this conversation. And my goodness, Dallas Willard is everywhere. But you got a lot of other people. Robert Coles and the Bible and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Eli Finkel and Christian Smith and his co-author, Melissa Dunquist Denton, Ryan Bird, G.K. Chesterton, John MacArthur, A.W. Tozer. You got a lot of people in there, a lot of people who are aiming at, as you were just describing, us becoming a better people, the idea that our leaders are downstream from the people themselves. And so you're calling on us to become a better, deeper, more moral people. And that's a hard project, especially from a town like Washington. And I actually want to ask you a question about that. You know, you mentioned Buffalo in Dallas Willard's story. I understand you're from Buffalo also. Here's a guy in his case who gets married at 20, grows up on a farm, loses his mom early on. He gets out there after good education, middle America education to USC, and he stays for five or six decades. I mean, a long time as a philosopher. Can he see things differently because he's blue collar and not an elite. Do you feel like there's any sense in which even in your own coming to Washington at such a young age and being from Buffalo and not necessarily going to Groton, you were able to see some things in public service that are harder to see if you come in from the elite inside? I didn't realize this when I first picked up Willard. One of the things I'm convinced is 
near the heart of why I'm so drawn to him and why I think his work is so important right now in this moment, in this political context, because he had such a difficult upbringing. And he doesn't harp on it. He's grateful for the blessings God had, but there's just a reality to the early stages of his life. He was not interested in a Christianity of pleasantries, of comforting slogans. He's very clear part of his journey towards ministry, part of just his wrestling with God over the years was, if this isn't about reality, I don't want a part of it. If this isn't real, if Christianity doesn't offer knowledge, publicly available knowledge about life as it is, then that doesn't meet the test of the kind of challenges and hardship that Dallas experienced especially early in his life, but as we all experience throughout our lives. At some point, all of us need to contend with whether what we profess we believe is something we actually believe to be true. And this is at the core of Dallas's work. One of the ways in which I think this connects to our politics, right, is that you just have a politics which suggests that there are things we need to do in politics that maybe we wouldn't do in our personal lives, maybe aren't ideal. But, you know, it's a tough world out there. And if you aren't willing to bully some folks, or if you aren't willing to have someone bully your enemies for you, then you're really not going to make it. You're just going to get steamrolled. Politics is not really a safe place to follow Jesus. Do that in your personal life. Direct quotes in churches. Love your enemies. Trust me, you don't want to try and do that in politics. Maybe if you want to do that in your personal life, that's fine. Well, as Christians, one of the contentions of the book is that when we as Christians accept that there are these areas of life in which Jesus's way is not wise, is not the way to proceed, that it's not safe to follow Jesus in this area of life, that doesn't stay quarantined to that area of life. There is no political you separate from the real you. There's just you. I have found that the same kind of logic that suggests Jesus would have us will the good of even those that we disagree with in politics, but that's really not reasonable. That's the same kind of logic that would lead the business owner when he's sitting with his accounting books and seeing that the numbers don't quite add up, saying, look, ideally, I'd be honest here, but look, I got people working for me. People are depending on me. I'm doing good work through my business. I just need to fudge the numbers here just this year. And I know other people in my line of work, they do it too. So like, this is just kind of the world as it is. And we'll just take care of this problem. And then I'll make sure I tie the little extra at church, or I'll make sure that I'm extra nice to my mother-in-law, who usually I mean to. So I'll, I'll sort of like overload the following Jesus in other areas of life where there's no pressure. Well, Christians are feeling a lot of pressure right now, culturally and politically. And this is one of the forums in which I believe we can either be formed more significantly into the likeness of Christ, or these can be the cracks through which discipleship, whole life discipleship, is made impossible. I'll just close this point by saying I think that has significant consequences for our politics. I think our public life is suffering a great deal from a lack of of Christian resources brought through in a witness with integrity. But even more fundamentally, more consequentially, as consequential as our politics and public life is, the life of the church, the formation of Christians into the likeness of Christ, our ability to step into the kingdom and live in the kingdom way is at risk here as well. This isn't just a political problem. This is a discipleship problem. And that's what I'm seeing pastors and others. It's what Tim, I think, wrestles with in his book, which is, yeah, has all these public implications, which are 
the stakes are high, but then you have pastors who are responsible for shepherding souls and they're going, yeah, I see all the ways this is a potential threat to our democracy, potential threat to a whole range of public concerns. But I also see the effect on my people's souls that these sort of political and social developments are having. And I'm concerned about both those things. And the environment now is quite a time to be asking this, to be pitching this, right? Because you can see, our listeners can't see on the screen, but you can see the view of the immorality of your political opponents is up higher than ever, right? 72% today say that Democrats are immoral. 63% of Democrats say that same thing about Republicans. That the numbers between 1994, when those of us on the call were in school, and today on seeing your opponent as very unfavorable, went from 21 to 62 percent for Republicans, from 17 to 54 percent for Democrats. We're mad at each other. Obviously, yes. there's even that line about thinking our country would be better off if our political opponents would die. That's very much in the air. And yet the titles that you're citing in this book that come from Dallas are things like the renovation of the heart, the allure of the gentleness. Allure of gentleness, yeah. So walk us through, because Tim has a big section in his book about the kingdom, surprising aspects of the kingdom. You talk about things like reading the news in your book. What's it mean to read the news differently, better, in the vein of Dallas Willard and his spirit? Yeah, I love the question. And I think it's, I talk in the book about this framework of political sectarianism, which I think is a really helpful one. I think it diffuses a lot of the sort of back and forth about, are we more polarized now or, or less? And let's have the historical debates, sure. But how about we deal with the circumstances we've been given now rather than sort of all these deflection games? What's true now is exactly what you laid out, which is that we have a politics that is driven by the, the logic of othering, aversion, and a misplaced moralism. So this is in a chapter of my book where I explore a range of both spiritual disciplines or practices that are conventional in the life of the church, things like prayer, worship, celebration. But then I also propose 21st century disciplines for public life. But when I'm traveling, one of the main questions I get is, okay, I understand that I have political responsibility as a citizen of this country, and that that means I need to be aware of what's going on. But the news makes me anxious. It makes me angry. I actually find that when I consume the news I'm consuming, I'm less understanding of my neighbors, not more understanding. So I offer in the book some guidelines. As you said, I talk about reading locally. And by the way, it's getting harder and harder to read locally because of some of the changes in the media environment that I think people who care about our civic life need to push back on. But there are still, I'm in Baltimore, there's a local paper here that's actually growing called the Baltimore Banner that does helpful local reporting. But reading locally will help you get in touch, not just with what the most national muddy interests want you to be thinking about when it comes to our political conversation, the most sort of salacious stories. But if you're reading locally in a healthy way, you'll actually, over time, gain a greater familiarity with what the needs of your neighbors are. What are the questions on the minds of the local public servants where you are, which it's not always the case, but I found that city council people, county executives, they're asking questions about how to make sure the garbage is taken care of consistently and potholes are filled, not always how to get on Fox News or CNN that evening. So I talk about reading locally. I talk about reading deeply and not anxiously. And so I think people need to be in tune with themselves and not think that the options are to either ignore our politics or to be refreshing the real clear politics polling average. Those are not the range of modes of engagement that are on offer. And I talk about reading the news as an invitation to prayer. And I think this is vital. I think too often Christians approach what's happening in politics as this sort of one area of life that's cordoned off from God, that maybe we could pray before we think about politics, and maybe we pray 
after we think about politics. But praying while we're thinking about politics, no, politics is secular. Politics is is where you get stuff done. And I want to invite and encourage Christians into praying while they're reading the news to actually take on practices that give them confidence that Jesus is aware of what is going on and that Jesus is up to the task of all of life, including our public challenges. So yeah, I think news consumption is such a burden for people. There are certainly particularized, individualized circumstances where the advice might be different, but I think the advice I offer in this book will help people feel more engaged, but feel healthy about their engagement in the media environment. Michael, I want to go back to something that you were saying a minute ago about this kind of trap in viewing politics as a self-contained escape from our everyday lives. I use the metaphor, which some people cringe at, others laugh at, that many of us as Christians, are tempted to view politics the way that a suburban dad views a weekend in Las Vegas, right? That all bets are off, the rules of everyday life don't apply, that you can go to Las Vegas and act a fool and do cocaine and go to strip clubs and gamble your kids' money away. But then when you come back on the flight, you're back to being suburban dad and you're normal and nobody ever... The problem is, What happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Our political engagement does not stay within the confines of politics because the world is watching us. You were talking about that a minute, albeit in perhaps less provocative terms. There's a line in your book that I found extraordinary. I highlighted it and underscored it and came back to it a couple of times. You said, for too long, Christians have asserted special status for this country while avoiding special responsibility. I'll read that again. For too long, Christians have asserted special status for this country while avoiding special responsibility. Now, that's a really striking thing to say. And I couldn't help when I read it. This is just my own interpretation. I thought back to all the times I've heard about being salt and light and specifically this idea of being salt. Well, don't you want to be salt, right? And unpacking what that metaphor means and what it doesn't mean, I've always been tied to the interpretation that the ancient world was filled with rocks and that salt was not just any other rock. Salt was a special rock. Salt had a distinctive flavor, but that if you contaminated it, it would become just like all the other rocks and then you would throw it. It was good for nothing except to be trodden underfoot, as Jesus says. So talk to us a little bit about that special responsibility, especially the special responsibility that Christians should have a special responsibility in any culture at any time. But I think even more so, as you are arguing, in a nation like ours that they believe to be uniquely blessed, that they should then have a unique responsibility Talk about what that responsibility is and how you see it in the modern context in America. As a citizen, you do not choose to have political responsibility. You already have it. So the decision to withdraw from politics or the decision to use the responsibility you have in a way that's out of alignment with what you say your ideals are, those decisions count. I have a chapter on the kingdom of God in my book. And Willard defines kingdom as the range of your effective will. So God's kingdom is the range of his effective will. But he also says that we each have our own little kingdoms, he says, the areas of life in which basically what we say goes. And politics, because we're citizens, because we have political influence by nature of being citizens, is within the range of our effective will. I love this way of thinking about politics because I think there's one route that says sort of politics is optional, that you do choose whether you have political influence or not, and you could sort of choose to withdraw, and and that's sort of a neutral decision. There's another route that I think is actually used way too often in the civic space, which is politics is about self-expression. It's about sort of unmediated effectuation of your will. And I think that places too much moral burden on it. I don't think it respects politics for what it is. What I love about thinking about politics as with something that's within the range of your effective will 
is I think it rightly sizes the moral burden. So what's within the range of our effective will in politics? Well, when we're in political discussions, what are we contributing and what's the nature of that contribution? What are decisions we make within our relationships and within our communities when politics sort of runs up against them. Obviously, our vote, and I have a, at the end of this chapter on the kingdom, I apply this idea specifically to the vote. I think we need a rightly placed, rightly situated, rightly shaped moral burden on politics that doesn't overstate it, that doesn't equate having the right political positions, or it doesn't suggest that a Christian politics necessarily means a policy platform that we all share. C.S. Lewis warns against this. He has a great essay called Meditations on the Third Commandment, in which he says the danger when you combine faith and politics is the temptation to proclaim God hath said in areas where he hasn't spoken. And that's what Christian political engagement has looked like in the past, which is A biblical worldview means these few issues and this position, and that's what you drive forward. I think we've seen sort of the failings of that because it leaves out the kind of person you are as you advance these quote unquote biblical positions. We found that to be pretty integral in our public life over the last decade or so, and I would argue far before that as well. Along the lines that Tim just asked about the Vegas trip, you have this wonderful section, I think it's page 84 of the book, Michael, you say, basically, if you've got a a theology that suggests you can be the worst kind of person and make it to heaven as long as you have a moment of mental assent to certain statements or maybe policy positions, then you have an approach to politics that's full of anger and hatred and fear. And as long as you hold the right position on those handful of issues, you're fine. And again, later you say that ideally the commitment to justice does not include anger and hatred, even though a lot of times we think it should in the political domain, which is awful. Oftentimes we think it has to. Mm. Mm. We think if you aren't angry, you don't really believe it. If you don't hold the people who disagree with you in contempt, then you must not really be committed. So we've actually equated, in some sort of sectors, we've equated biblical conviction with being accompanied with all of these deeply unbiblical feelings and sentiments and actions towards those. And that's a really destructive place to be. Here's what I'm embarrassed it took me such a long time to realize. It is no wonder that if you have a gospel, Willard refers to this as a gospel of sin management. If you have a gospel that suggests, as you just said, that so long as you provide mental assent to these few lines of doctrine, you'll end up in the good place. Everyone else ends up in the bad place. And Willard says this is developed, and he's not talking in a political context. He's saying this is developed to such an extent that as is widely recognized, there is no clear difference between identifiable difference between the character of someone who is Christian and someone who is not. Not only that, you can't identify, because there's been the suggestion that if you do identify a difference, that's justification by works. So we've actually boxed people into this idea that formation is actually optional. It's actually not essential to the gospel. Maybe it's a nice to have, but salvation, and in these sort of theological stories, salvation is what happens after you die. Willard says eternal life starts now, And he didn't just come up with that. That's Jesus. (laughs) Life with Jesus is about having an eternal kind of life now, not waiting till after you die. And Paul talks about putting on, for you have taken off the old self and put on a new self, which is constantly being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. You've taken off the old practices and replaced them with the new practices. You've rid yourself of malice and anger this is the core of the gospel. That's the theology. But if we have a theology that says, no, you just need to provide mental assent to a few key lines of doctrine, and then you're in, it's no wonder why we end up with a politics that says what it means to be a Christian in politics is to hold the right position on a select handful of issues, and you could advance those positions through the most destructive means possible. But that's how we determine if you're a values voter or not. 
not whether you advance those policy positions with any semblance of values, but it's such a you're in or you're out. And these things are connected. And that's really what this book is about, which is the ways in which, see, I actually think the problem is much deeper than I've seen a lot of people suggest, which is I've seen a lot of at least suggestions of this idea that, man, somewhere just like Trump really just led Christians astray on politics, but everything was like great before. Like Trump is just sort of like this. He really took things off course. What I like about Tim's book, what I like about our friend John Ward's book is that there's actually a longer story here and it doesn't just include, and I would argue isn't primarily driven by ideological positions. I actually think the ideology, the political ideology of evangelicals is quite fluid. There's the potential. It looks very different eight years from now, just like it looks very different than it did eight years or 12 years ago. What we need to understand is that this is a disciple issue. It's a theological issue that's bound up with the role of discipleship and formation in the church. Michael, one of the consistent warnings that I read in the book, and you gave voice to it a little while ago, was against the othering, the tribal sorting into good guys and bad guys, into true believers and apostates, often in just the narrowest context of a specific policy matter, you're either with me or you're with them. And it's this sort of kind of lazy, lowest common denominator categorizing built around this idea of politics as a proxy for good and evil, and there's no middle ground, right? But then you actually take it a step further late in the book. At least this was how I read it. You didn't construct it this way, but you share this wonderful story about teaching on the Beatitudes and this exercise in which you challenged people to say, okay, in a modern adaptation of the Sermon on the Mount, who else would be blessed? And I love the squeegee boys. I, I want you to, to talk a little bit about that application of the squeegee boys, but tie it if you can, do a little gymnastics if you have to, but tie it back to this idea of it's not good enough just to do away with the othering, but you actually need to be actively expanding your definition of whose is the kingdom of God ultimately and who is blessed in the sights of not only their creator, but in the, the sights of their fellow man. Yes. Willard's reading of the Beatitudes, of the Sermon on the Mount, is that what is happening is that Jesus is actually talking to specific people that have gathered. People who would have been judged at the time as outside of God's favor. These are people who could not possibly be blessed. So this isn't like Jesus's ideal list of traits you should be. Like, it's probably best not to be poor in spirit if you can help it. But what Jesus is saying is that because of what I have ushered in, there is an availability to being blessed in the kingdom of God that is available to all. I was leading a small group discussion on this. And just as you said, Willard says, you know, today this would be the dumb, the unfashionable, the slob, the person who doesn't never know what to say in a social setting. So he asked, think about who in this culture, would it be surprising that they too have access to blessing in the kingdom of God? And the very last person to speak was someone who lives in Baltimore. And this was at a time in which Baltimore was especially wrestling with Squeegee boys and squeegee boys just real are young, primarily males who would, when your car was stopped at intersection, would go up and go to clean your windows. And there was a lot of and continues to be a lot of public conversation about them. Have they been failed by the system? Are they a public safety threat? A whole bunch of conversation about what has happened to them, what they might do to others. And so it was just such a, Miss Valerie was her name, speaks up on the call and she goes, blessed are the squeegee boys. And I thought that is exactly right. Do we have an imagination for 
even, quote unquote, the squeegee boys being blessed in the kingdom of God. And in politics, we have to be very careful, even of politicians, but especially of neighbors and people who, you know, I think there's such, every Thanksgiving comes around and there's all of this hand-wringing about what do I do if my uncle expresses what I find to be a distasteful or even truly harmful political view? Am I morally obligated to shout him down? Am I morally culpable if I attend Thanksgiving dinner? I mean, these are real articles that are written, real viewpoints that are put forward. I just think we need to be very careful about condemnation in public life. We need to be very careful about writing people off based on our perception of their intentions with their political viewpoints, and even assuming or sort of putting on them a level of intent and agency that they may not even be employing. So like my question for the uncle is like, if your uncle is a sitting United States senator, maybe. If you don't know whether your uncle's even bothered to vote in 20 years, Maybe you ought to be thinking in other ways about the moral and ethical sense of duty that you have to him or to your aunt or whatever. The calls for condemnation are rarely, if ever, intended for the good of the person who would be subject to condemnation. They're entirely about using that person and the condemnation of that person to posture oneself and to express something about the kind of person you are. We need to have a greater appreciation for the dignity of the human person than to use them as a ploy, as a pawn in our own political self-actualization. There's a lot more to say there, but yeah, that's part of what I walked through in the book. I have an exit question, Michael, about it gets practical at various places. You have that line about affirm those you oppose yeah. and critique those you support. Yes. It sounds a lot like Arthur Brooks. Yeah. There's a lot about how you want to be working on the realities of the heart, less on the mind, less orthodoxy, more orthopraxy. Okay, so how's that actually happen? You've got a good bit in here about how we might do this individually, how we might think in fresh, different ways, an upside down kingdom. I remember, I think I've said on this podcast before, John Ortberg, who was known, you knew Dallas very well, closed one time a lecture saying, Dallas challenged me to come up with one word that was the word that most described Jesus. And he asked people to try and everybody had these ideas. They were all wrong. And the word was relaxed. And his idea was unanxious, the opposite of what so much of our politics is today. Okay. So that's individual a little bit, but what about the Center for Christianity and Public Life? I mean, we at Faith Angle, some people say you can't change people's minds after 30, and you're working with people who are 20 and 30 and 40-something sometimes, I think. How do you institutionally begin to incarnate some of this so that it's not just you in your closet wrestling with these themes? How does it get practical with a group? One of the greatest gifts that Christians can offer to our politics and our public life right now is not in telling our politics and trying to define and dictate what our politics is, but making clear what our politics is not. And so part of Christian orthodoxy is this idea that politics is prudential. It's penultimate. What a gift that would be in a politics of condemnation, in a politics of existentialism, in a Flight 93 political environment, to offer the point of view that actually our political positions are not orthodoxy. Our political positions are not direct translations of the will of God, that actually whenever you step into politics, you're in the translation business, and we are imperfect translators. So that is part of what it looks like to speak in a cultural way into the political environment we have. Part of it is contending for and making public ideas like forgiveness Ideas like mercy. Willard defines joy as a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. As I've been speaking at Christian colleges and churches and other places over the last several years, I've asked folks, how many of you would define our politics as full of a pervasive and constant sense of well-being? 
And of course, it's a laugh line. But for Christians, we need to ask, why is that? Why are we so quick to accept that a pervasive and constant sense of well-being could not possibly, it would be unreasonable for that to characterize a Christian public presence? I think too often when we think about why Christians should engage in politics, it's well, we have the right answer on this policy issue. And if we just go in there and get this done, God's will will be advanced. It is a way of penultimatizing the ultimate. It is a way of actually making God small when actually what our politics, what our public life needs right now is a big God who puts politics in its rightful place, in its limited but essential place. We have those resources. These are not inventions. This is Augustine. Uh, This is Aquinas. This is King. This is Thurman. These are resources that are well within the tradition that we need to retrieve and that we need to offer, even if, so right, so part of the problem is that we're in an ecosystem where folks go, well, how are we going to dictate political outcomes? That seems to leave a lot up to question. That leaves some room in the joints. We need to say, yeah, yeah, Christianity does that. And if we start baptizing our prudential political opinions and treating them with the same authority, I mean, this is a problem. We talked about this in the conversation about your book, Tim, which is right. When you start as a pastor or as a Christian authority, giving your political opinions from the same pulpit from which you're reading the gospel. The folks in the pew have two real options. One, they could think, I don't agree with the political opinions. Those aren't right. And they start to question whether the gospel reading has the same level of authority. Or they say, this is the man who brings the gospel, or this is the pastor who brings the gospel to my life. And that has such authority. They start to transfer the authority of the gospel to your prudential, the pastor's prudential political opinions, both are an utter disaster, right? And so we just need to be very careful about where we're bringing our authority as Christians. It sounds like such a subtle shift, but the subtle shift from saying, my Christian faith motivates me to hold this position. And what I think is what we've seen far too much of is I hold this position because I'm a Christian. That may sound like a, but just that shift would transform, I think, the way that Christians themselves are thinking about politics, but also how the watching world thinks Christian authority and and Christian knowledge applies to politics. It's not about dictate. It's about motivation. It's not about domination. It's about service and offering the best of what we have as we can see it imperfectly. Michael, you mostly spoke to just then at the end what I wanted to ask you here in closing, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and I, and I want you to bring us home with this. What's interesting as I read your book is that you are earnestly and passionately articulating a warning that politics must not bring out the worst in us as believers. And yet you are also arguing, it seems to me, at the very least, you're arguing it in between the lines, that believe it or not, laugh line when you present it or not, that politics could in fact bring out the best in us. If we are to discipline ourselves and if we are to really set our minds to carrying out our calling and constantly challenging our own assumptions, critiquing our allies, hearing out our perceived adversaries. So close on that thought, if you could, when you're talking with that group who hears it as a laugh line, what is the appeal that you make to people who have, as you write in the book, who have come to so reflexively associate politics with the nastiest, ugliest, most base impulses of our collective being, how you try to flip that on its head and get people, especially Christians, to think about politics as an opportunity and as a stage, as a platform for us to showcase the very best that we have to offer. 
it has to bring out the best in us. Because the life of a Christian is about learning from Jesus how to put all that we do under the jurisdiction of love. You don't hear these rationalizations often in other areas of life. You don't hear it. Being a son really brings out the worst in me. Need to discard that. Everywhere else, pretty good Christian. My work life, it doesn't bring out the best in me. I need to get away with that. Or it just doesn't count. With Jesus, all of life counts. And this is not something to be, I spend a great deal of time in the book. If people imagine God as a school mom who is constantly looking over your shoulder, grading you and giving you check marks on this, check marks on that. People import that into their lives, including what they think their political participation is about. But that's not what God is like. We are learning from Jesus with all of our stumbles, with all of our failings, how to grow in his character. And politics is not the only forum for that. It's not the most important forum for that. But as again, as Christians in this country, we have political responsibility. Politics is a part of our lives, whether we want it to be or not. We better steward this area of life like every other area of life in a way that leads towards life, towards love, in a way that leads us closer to Jesus and not accept that, hey, I'm going to distance myself from the way of Jesus in this area of my life and hope that I can make up the ground elsewhere. If we're able to view politics as an essential forum for loving God and loving our neighbors, it will be a tremendous blessing to a politics and a public life that is suffering right now and that is inflicting suffering right now, that is causing spiritual harm. It will also mean that we are concentrating on that which I think Jesus is most concerned about, which is the kind of people we are becoming. And politics is one of the areas in which I think Christians are most challenged right now, where the pressure is on, and therefore it's one of the areas of great opportunity, again, both for us and for those in our communities. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Tim. If you, as a listener, went out right away last time and got a 468-page book called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, now you get to go out and get a 228-page book called The Spirit of Our Politics. Congratulations on its publication, Michael, and thanks for joining. Thank you for the conversation, friends. Appreciate it. Faith Angle connects leading journalists, scholarly thinkers, and public analysts to one another and to new audiences to help produce better informed journalism and better informed readers. Thanks for listening.